Welcome to Shelf Talkers, a podcast from Villagewell Books and Coffee in downtown Culver City. Welcome back to Shelf Talkers, a podcast through the Villagewell Books and Coffee in downtown Culver City, interviewing writers about their newest releases, writing process, and what they are themselves reading. I am Jared Kassebaum, and sitting next to me is my co-host and co-worker, Julia Elizabeth Evans. Hey guys, I'm so excited to be here and talking about books. We're so excited to be here, and these shelves talk to us, our temporary tagline for the podcast, unless something better comes to mind. Today's guest is our wildly prolific author of more than 25 books, including her newest novel, House of Hearts, released earlier this year, Francesca Leah Block. Uh, Francesca, how are you doing today? Thanks so much for coming in. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we love to have you here. Um, it's it's crazy how prolific you are. We're so thankful for you to be a friend of the store and a friend of um, Jen, the owner of Village Well, and we're so thankful for the different ways that you partnered with the bookstore in the past. I love the Village Well. Everyone should visit it. It's the best. Um, yeah, so our first trademark question is, would you be willing to write a shelf talker for your book, House of Hearts? And uh, to explain, a, a shelf talker is one of those note cards that you see all around our store, on our shelves, that does a little pitch about the book and um, essentially is a recommendation to pick up the book. Oh, okay. Yes, uh, House of Hearts is about Izzy, a young woman who lives in the Salton Sea area with her boyfriend. He goes missing and she goes on a journey to search for him that takes her into some dark places, including a, a cult called House of Hearts. And um, it ends up being an exploration, not only of um, a young woman searching for love, but also more importantly for herself. And I would hope uh, readers would say that it is mythic, uh, mm. lyrical, and suspenseful. Well, wow, I love that. I do think that when I've when I've uh, read Goodreads reviews of your books, I think lyrical is probably like the top buzzword I feel like I've seen in reviews, and that's a beautiful um, compliment. To thank receive. you, thank you. Um, when we talk about House of Hearts, and the, the you said it kind of has like a mythic element. Where did that come from, and how did you work that into the book? There was a myth that was haunting me for many years, and I say to my students, when you have a traditional story of some kind, I use fairy tales a lot too, but when it haunts you, really explore it because there's a message there for you that you may not even realize. And so that's what happened with this. I just knew I wanted to, there was a truth in it that I wanted to explore and I couldn't find the characters or the plot quite to match to it until one day the character literally emerged from the ground up. I saw a vision of her actually going to, uh, rescue a character from another book, unrelated novel, and um, to avenge her death, actually. And ultimately, and that's from there, the whole story came together with the myth. So you wrote, you took that idea of the of your character who arrived in your mind from the ground up, and you were able to import that into like another fictional universe, but then kind of take it back into your own? Yes, exactly. So the books are completely unrelated, sure, but, sure, but sure, there sure. was that thematic link. Can I ask one follow-up on that? Yeah, of course. Uh, when you say mythic, like what what to you makes a story mythic mm. versus a story that might not be mythic? And, and is that based on like what inspired you? Because I know that um, throughout the book, there's reference to 
other cultural myths pretty explicitly. It's that, but it is also, I, I hope, expressed through a kind of poetic language and a kind of archetypal character and theme. Right. So even if you're not basing something directly on a, on a myth, I think it can feel mythic. It's, it's a combination of a very personal story and also hopefully one that has resonance in a larger way, like I talk a lot about the environment in that book. So to me that it takes it into a slightly more transcendent realm. I I'm, I have so much to say about this book because I don't normally read mysteries and suspense and I was just blown away by how propulsive something that is so lyrical could be. And I wanted to share a personal connection I have. My very best friend who I've traveled the world with, who have gone to China and Colombia, he changed his name from Anna to Isis. And then it was a huge deal for him to be Isis for some amount of time while we lived in New Orleans. And we really thought deeply about that name. And eventually it became so, it was such a deeply set, meaningful name that he ended up having to you know, let it go. And now he's named Asher. Oh, so it's oh. been part of his whole transition as, some, as a transgender yeah. person. And at the end when Izzy found her name as Aurora. Oh, wow. It just settled a lot of stuff for me, especially because it's in the context of mythology and environment, you know, womanhood, sacrifice, all of that. And, and it's not just archetypes, it's something really real. Thank you so much for sharing that. Those stories are the reason that I think a lot of people want to write because it's a way to touch people that you don't even know. And, and it's so mean, important to me. So thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, and I wanted to, with thinking about House of Hearts, I mean, to me at least, reading the book, it's immense. I mean, it's a small book. I mean, it's only 200 pages, yeah. but it's, it's immense as far as all the things that you're covering, you're covering family, generational wounds, motherhood, sacrifice, archetypes. Um, yet you tell Izzy's story with so much propulsiveness. And I'm, I'm really, this is a question now about process. Like, how do you gather all your pieces? And then how do you know what to keep and what to throw away? The way I usually start is in a very organic, personal way where I explore whatever I'm going through emotionally at the time with the characters. I'm not as focused on plot. I'm focused on language, characters. Those are things that come easier to me. However, in the last decade or so. I've been obsessed with really understanding plot. Uh, I've studied, I went back to school and got my MFA very recently. I was already teaching in an MFA program, but I, I wanted to, <laughs> to uh, you know, have more options. But I also ended up learning a lot by revisiting a lot of my favorite books and also taking screenwriting as sort of the cross genre or minor. And as I'm studying screenplays and three-act structure, which I already sort of innately knew and had studied a bit in the past, but it started, I became really focused on it. And so the more I structured the book, the first draft of the book, that way, the stronger it became. Now I use that method with my students, but I'm very careful to not impose that too quickly because I think if you just start with three-act structure and screenplay beats, you can miss out on a lot of depth. So I think starting in a deeper way and then applying it is, is a really powerful method, and I use it all the time now. Yeah, I know you talked about in the Thor necklace about starting with um, like what you're obsessed with at that time. Is that how this 
uh, House of Hearts came about as well? Very, very much. Um, I, I think I've worked that way, and I've been fortunate to be able to work that way. Of course, I came up in a very different time in publishing where I could work that way, but I still believe in it. Um, yes, I was obsessed with the desert, with love, certainly the search for self, the myths, um, all that material, and yes. You say that the publishing, you don't think you'd be able to start that way now? Why do you think that? I, I just feel that I was very lucky. I started out quite young in a time where people were just giving out contracts and money and touring. It was just a whole, such a different world. I believe that's the case for some writers today, but not for someone like me who had, you know, came out of nowhere and, and just was really given a lot of opportunities and then they would say well what book do you want to write next at one point i want i had a, just had my daughter and i wanted to write um about my first year as a mom and they're like hey you're great write a book about your first year as a mom you know wow that's really that's cool that you that you have that gratitude toward that part of your journey yes and i always i wish it for i mean I wish it for many of my students. I, I think it's so much harder. I do love the fact, though, that other more marginalized voices now are having those opportunities that did not exist at that time. So, you know, it's been it's changed in some ways, become more difficult for some people, but certainly empowered others. And that's been really beautiful to see the confidence that writers are uh, feeling now that didn't um that had been marginalized and then what books are coming out of them because of it it's really exciting there are more years in your adult life that you've published a book than you haven't published a book and how are you able to find inspiration year after year to write books at such a high yeah. quality thank you i i think one it started because i was very lucky to have parents who encouraged it from the time i could pick up a pen basically so I try to give that to my students who didn't have that. That's one thing. Um, I also ha had a lucky break when I was very young um, with Weetzy Bat, which then opened the door and allowed, you know, a lot of other opportunities. But at a certain point after that initial uh, youthful exuberance <laughs> started to wane a little, that's when I had to look at, uh, what ins what inspires me now? What am I obsessed with now? Like talking about my daughter. Um, and also, how can I use whatever pain I'm experiencing in my daily life to motivate me to transform into art? So, which has always been what I did naturally as a kid. If I was sad, I would write. You know, it was just, it was very cathartic. But then I had to do it a little more consciously, and that's where I developed the Thor necklace, uh, healing through writing and the creative process. And the 12 questions. And the 12 questions, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, in, in Thor necklace, you write, there's a, you reference this word, hypergraphia. Can you define that word and talk about that? Yeah. How you discovered it, maybe? Yes. So there's a book called The Midnight Disease. Alice Flaherty, I believe now she goes by her initials, not Alice. She experienced a trauma and she's she was a neurologist. She experienced a trauma and she couldn't stop writing, just writing, writing, writing on every surface she could find. Mm. When she recovered, she turned this wild writing spree into this book about hypergraphia, which is the inability to stop writing, which apparently Stephen King, Joyce Carol Oates um, have this, um, at least according to her. And 
the, what I try to look at is how can those of us who feel stuck, at, which we all do at certain times, how can we get out of that by activating that part of the brain that's connected to trauma and turning it into creativity? And she even did studies of this neurologically. I know that for me, I can feel, I mean, not in a scientific way, right? Just when I'm feeling under stress and then I write and there, there's a shift that happens. So I want to tap into that and I want to help my students tap into that because I think it's really powerful. There's a shift that happens within yourself yes. of, of noticing the, the stress being relieved. Or, it, yes, exactly. And, and literally studying anxiety most of my life, having anxiety, um, I'm learning more and more about the relationship between that. And in mm. fact, this little anecdote that she talks about um, that the one, the two things that helped Holocaust survivors, uh, one was massage and one was um, telling their stories. So the more we can express ourselves or kind of move energy out of ourselves, I think the more healing we can experience. That's beautiful. And that was so helpful. Yeah, I think because the question of inspiration is so fascinating creatively, you know, like what she mentioned before we were on air, like I'm a comedian yeah. and I perform a lot and I write yeah. jokes a lot, but I'm also obviously drawn to novels and writing of other kinds yeah. Why I work at a bookstore and everything. Cause I think so much of it is like, cool, I had one good idea. That probably won't happen again for the next five years. Or like, it's easy to feel that way. Or like, how do you break through um, that and like continuously know and trust that as you write through that stress or as you write through that pain, that then that next idea is also a novel, you know, or like how how does that sit? Yeah, through? I mean, I think it's just trust that um, if you have to start somewhere, right? So that's the raw ingredients. It's like if you're going to bake something, you need the ingredients to bake. So every step of the way is it none none of it is a waste. Maybe this won't turn into the exact ne my next novel, but right now. My relationship with the man I've been dating for a year, you know, is is the thing that's dominating my psyche. So is that going to be a book? Is it not? It doesn't even matter. It's like yeah. the feelings, the imagery, the things that I'm going to explore it and then see where it takes me. And and sometimes it, it works and sometimes it doesn't, but it seems to keep that energy moving. I have a, I have a question now a little bit about thinking about pain thinking about it both neurologically, but also physically. And my question really is simple. Do you, when you're writing, do you write on your computer or do you write handwriting? And what is your relationship to just handwriting versus typewriting? I actually love that question because I have a very strong theory about it, but it's crazy theory, but like, so I love, I'm, please, this is what it's for. <laughs> Thank you. So I'm left-handed. I'm entirely right brain. I mean, just no left brain skills at all. And so when I... Wait, sorry, can you define yes. which one is the right brain? Yes. So left-handed right brain is all creativity, and uh, right-handed left brain is more logic. And so I can't do math to save my life, for example. So um, what happens is when I handwrite with my left hand, it just floats away. Mm. It, there's no activation of the logical part of my brain. So I joke, but it's kind of true. The best class I ever took in my life was seventh grade typing. Oh man, that's <laughs> cool. It was this skill. First of all, I use it 
I've used it every day for my entire life and it's such a blessing to have it. But also I think it literally balances yeah. my brain. And so I, so I have to type, I cannot handwrite. It's just a mess. And not only liter- looks messy, but like it, it doesn't go anywhere. So it's funny. Cool. Because it's activating the logical part of your brain and it's like keeping you kind of reined in to kind of the focus of the project. I hand. think so. I just think by using my right hand, I'm, I'm, more balanced and more yes focused more logically um oriented to in terms of plot perhaps you yeah, or just simply balanced like you're moving in a balanced direction yeah literally balanced yeah. right yeah. yeah i i do feel like i would i'm realizing in your answers that even your answer to my question too and your answer to this question is helping me even i think pull away from like the commodified version of writing into the healing and i think like even this conversation is helping drive that home for me after having read a, a good junk of Thorn Necklace and trying to dive into what it means to heal through writing. But it's so easy in our day to see it as a commodity of how do I, is it only worth writing to sell? Right. And I think that even, I think I just want to almost like admit that that was, I'm realizing like, oh, your question, your answer was almost like misdirection away from mm. the commodified point of view so that it gets back into the heart of how it actually helps us. I just see that so strongly. So many students will come to me, you know, I mean, there's, especially through my extension classes, I would say, because that's a little bit more, maybe a more practical audience. And um, they'll be, you know, their fo- if their focus is on selling the book, it can be great. You know, I want them to sell the book, but I always want people, if they can, to start from a deep place first, especially if they're stuck, and then develop it for the outer world, because there's so much, again, you can kind of miss if you if you don't. And, but it is so hard. I mean, of course, we all want to sell books. Of course, we want, you know, it's such a natural impulse and a beautiful impulse to want to connect to your readers and the world through this instead of just the isolation. Um, but I believe it starts there and it starts in the, pers- in the personal and then expands to that. That's beautiful. One of our final questions would be, you lead a poetry and fiction essay, memoir, literary journal called Lit Angels, um, which often meets at our bookstore, Village Well. Uh, why did you decide to create your own lit journal and how have you seen the community grow over the years? Oh, thank you for asking. So it started just a year ago. I was thinking about my role as a writer, as a teacher. I love that it transitioned to helping other people and getting other voices out there. At the same time, I'm not... I by teaching them and strengthening their books, I'm not really getting the work into the world f- with them. I mean, I'm trying to help them, but it's so it's quite difficult these days, just to be honest. So even with my career and my connections, it's just difficult. So what I wanted to do is give them a venue, a direct venue that I could assist them in getting it out there and creating this community. And my friend and I, Linda Davis, who has been my student for a long time, but I joke, she's really my co-teacher. I don't know why she calls herself my student, <laughs> but anyway. And she and I just thought, let's, one day we we're like, let's do this thing. Let's make a PDF with some of our friends' work. And we, we did it, and then we did another, and then someone volunteered to do the art, and then we started finding all these incredible artists, visual artists, and it just grew. It's still very small. And then Jen was so generous to let us do some readings at Village Well. We've had, I think, 
four, maybe. Four Lit Angels readings. Lit Angels readings, yeah. So, you know, I host, but then I have these writers, some of whom have never published anything before. Some who are well-known, Anna Dorn, Amanda Yates Garcia, the poet Molly Bendel, who teaches at USC, Mm -hmm. um, Deanne Stillman, Daniel Weitzman, a lot of different, Jack Skelly. They're there, but then also these, you know, beginning writers. um, And it's been so fun to see them and see them grow and see them become friends with each other. And now they're starting to, one of them was a short story writer. She's writing her novel. I've seen it really encourage them. So it's been great. Is that an event that is um, open to the uh, public for these readings? Yes, it's open to the public. We've been doing them usually Saturdays at, I think, 5.30, And um, we'll be hopefully doing more. And uh, if the writers have books for sale. You can they can be purchased at the bookstore too. And then the also anyone who's listening and would like to contribute, there's a lit uh, let's see lit angel submissions at gmail dot com. Uh, we're looking for essays, poetry, fiction, uh, excerpts from novels, short stories, etc., and art. The kind of last question is: Do you have a book or a recommendation that you would write for the store as a shelf talker? Your, your staff picks. Even oh, my staff, staff pick? Picks. There's so uh-huh. many. But I'll tell you the books that I teach with. Um, I won't describe them all, but I'll just name them all. And they're familiar books. Uh, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, one of the greatest novels ever written, which somehow I missed in high school and re- read as an adult and keep reading and keep using as a teaching tool because it's perfect. Um, Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Beloved by Toni Morrison, House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende. Um, gosh, so many. Uh, we'll stop there because otherwise I could go on for like an hour. Those are great. Well, it's beautiful to see your work kind of sit in that larger. Yeah. Um, well, I know that I read House of the Spirits when I was very young and magical and um, also 100 Years of Solitude. And that magical realism tradition was was really influential. It blew my mind. I was like, oh, you can do this? You can write serious fiction and you can have these magical things, but it's the real world. So I always loved those books as well. Anything you want to add, Julia? I'm just sitting in gratitude right now. So am I. (laughs) You guys are the best. You both are the best. Thank you so, so much. I frankly really needed this. It can get very isolating, you know, um, even though I've had this awesome career, I'm very connected to community, but this world, it can be very isolating. So I I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much for coming in for Shelf Talkers. Stick around for our uh, little audio newsletter of upcoming events happening at Village Well. I am Jared. I'm Julia. And this has been Francesca Leo Block. Thank you so much. And welcome back. So this is our second segment of the Shelf Talkers podcast called Culver and Duquesne. It's our audio newsletter. And I'm here with Abby Fisher, my co-bookseller. And we're going to talk about what book Abby just finished, hear her recommendation, and then talk a little bit about events at Village Well Books and Coffee. So, Abby, what book did you just finish, or what book do you want to recommend to folks? Well, I just finished Burnham Wood by Eleanor Catton. Great read. Um, it was recommended to me by our other bookseller, Avery Weinman. Um, she really liked the book. She wrote a great shelf talker for it in the store. Um, and upon a recommendation, I read it and absolutely loved it. Yeah, that, because of Avery's shelf talker, that book was sold out at Village Well throughout all of December. And I actually meant to buy it, but it was sold out. 
All right. Sorry I beat you to it. (laughs) Yeah. Too bad. But here we are. So what is Burnham Wood about? It's a bit of a parallel to Macbeth. So if you're a fan of Shakespeare, classic plays, this is a great book for you. But it's also a thriller and it tackles a lot of modern day questions. The title actually comes from a phrase in Macbeth being Macbeth shall never vanquished be until great Burnham Wood to high Dunsinane Hill shall come against him. But as Avery said, you know, you can kind of put it differently. The power of so-called great and powerful men will crumble when nature fights back. Sounds like, is there is it environmentalism? Is that what it's about? What What's sort of the, the plot? I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So the novel sort of focuses on a group of Kiwi anarchist gardeners. Wow, right. Um, and they basically try to live off the land, um, sort of guerrilla gardening, you can call it. And then they want to occupy this abandoned property near um, a New Zealand national park. But when they're there, they actually come into contact with a sort of very mysterious, enigmatic American billionaire who also has some invested, you know, value and thoughts in that land. Is there a Lady Macbeth in the story? Um, I think you'd have to read it to figure out who you think Lady Macbeth would be and who you think Macbeth would be. I think there's a lot of questions um, that you can sort of grapple with as you read it. Wow, that's, I mean, are we all just trying to be anarchist gardeners? It's like really... That would be the dream. I mean, we're podcasting, but really we're just interested in anarchy gardening. Certainly. I mean, that dovetails really finely into a book that I just finished, uh, Parable of the Sower, which is actually the upcoming environmentalist book club book. I'm not going to talk too much about it because I want to save the conversation for Mm -hmm. the book club that's happening in the shop. That's going to be on Tuesday, February 13th, mm-hmm. so about two weeks from now. Last month, we read The Heat Will Kill You First by Jeff Goodall, and we had an incredible conversation. We had 25 people come to the book club, and it was just a great time. And if folks who are listening are interested in other events at Village Well Books and Coffee, please go to our website and check that out. We have, as we mentioned in our f- previous podcast, four or five events each week if not more so it's a great time and thanks so much for that recommendation Abby oh gosh thank you for having me I hope um, people listening read it and we can talk about it yeah excellent and come in the store and talk to Abby about Burnham Wood yeah thanks guys this episode of Shelf Talkers is brought to you by Village Well Books and Coffee was produced by Jared Kassebaum and Julia Elizabeth Evans edited by Julia Elizabeth Evans and our theme music is from Noah Vickland until next time keep reading